myth, magic, medicine, and everything in between. Two doctors talking. Hi, this is Denise Villamir here with Myth, Magic, Medicine. And my guest today is Alyssa Jong, who is an MD, PhD, and an ophthalmologist, ocular plastic surgeon. So I'd like for her to introduce herself to you and explain exactly what that entailed to get there and why she's pivoted slightly in doing something a little bit different these days. So yeah, over so to you. <laughs> thanks for having me. Um, so I guess just to start with even earlier, I did my undergraduate training uh, I don't know why I call it training. I went to college <laughs> at Caltech, which is a very research heavy institution. And in all honesty, you almost get a graduate education as an undergraduate at Caltech. So my junior, senior year classes were all with the graduate students at Caltech. So that I think really developed the idea of doing the PhD with the MD. Um, honestly, my first thought wasn't necessarily to go to medicine. I was pre-med when I was in college, but it was kind of like a it, it wasn't necessarily the, the entire goal. I actually got an engineering and applied science. I majored in engineering and applied science, and I did a concentration kind of essentially in neuroscience. And so that there was some biology bridge to that. So I did take a lot of biology classes for the, the neuroscience component. And I did really enjoy that aspect. But I also did a lot of programming and more technical side. I graduated undergrad in 2001, so right after the tech bubble. Not a great time to get a job. <laughs> I did apply for jobs. I actually applied for jobs in like management consulting and um, investment banking um, and didn't get any of those jobs. I did get a job as an engineer, essentially, as a programmer. Um, and then I decided that looking at the economy, that maybe being a physician would be a nice, safe, secure job where I could really serve people. And, you know, um, and I, I did volunteer at hospitals. I mean, I, I had awareness of what it was to be a physician. And I think part of that even probably made me think, I remember there was a resident that I um, was kind of working or shadowing for a little bit. And he was like, you know, if there's anything else you'd love to do, you may want to consider that first. <laughs> So, uh, so I did consider it, and then I decided to just go ahead and go to medicine. So I ended up doing a year of research while I was applying for medical school, and I applied for that MD PhD partially because I didn't want to take on the loans for medical school. And mm. medical school was, you know, quite expensive. I had taken on loans for undergrad; those were manageable. Um, and again, I had a very research-heavy background, and I thought, well, you know, it would be great if I could try to combine some research with the medicine. Mm -hmm. um, and so I applied for MD-PhD programs, was accepted in two, ended up going to Case Western Reserve, uh, spent eight years there. And during my uh, graduate years, it's the first time in retrospect where I actually experienced some burnout. I had a principal investigator PI, that's the person uh, you kind of work for when you're a graduate student, who was... Uh, who micromanaged a, a quite a bit. And so I, I didn't feel like I had as much autonomy. And that, that is why I, the, the, that loss of autonomy in retrospect was kind of some burnout. So I started reading a lot about personal finance and investing. I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I actually ended up finishing my PhD a little off cycle. So I finished it in like three years and three, four months. Mm -hmm. And so I could have gone back to med school um, off cycle, but then given up a whole bunch of elective time. But instead, I chose to just take the rest of the year off, go back to med school in July, the normal time you go back to PGY3. Mm -hmm. And I spent that time actually flipping uh, houses. I, I bought a bank-owned foreclosure and fixed it up. 
and got that sold and then did it a second time. Uh, and uh, so that really taught me a lot about right investing mm-hmm. and, and it was exciting, but um, you know, it, 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 I won't say it was easy necessarily. And I did feel like I was also a little lucky. And I'm assuming you weren't bashing down doors and putting up cabinets. You, you were. Um, no, I hired that stuff out, yeah. but I painted, I, you know, did uh, kind of some landscaping. I mean, I kind of did all the things I could do, which mm-hmm. isn't a ton. <laughs> a lot of it was hired out. The roof was hired out, the furnace, the kitchen and bathroom remodels, the refinishing of the wood floors. Yeah. All that was hired out, but just learning how to hire contractors, get bids, you know, all of that was, mm-hmm. uh, was a, uh, a lot to learn. Yeah. And so I ended up going back to med school and I actually remember during the core rotations, I was kind of like, Ooh, I don't know if I want to do this. And what I realized in retrospect is I'm so really the, not that fan of a inpatient medicine. The break is you, you do two you preclinical two years, then you do the PhD portion and you go back into third year. Yes. So you hadn't really done any clinical stuff before that. Yeah. I mean, there's, you know, some minor, it's a little bit, stuff, yeah. but yeah, yeah the, the real clinical stuff's not till third year for sure. Okay, sorry, I interrupted you. Yeah, no. Um, so they are back and, at medical school. <laughs> yeah, and and again, going through rotation, you're like, oh, I'm not sure I want to do this. But what I found was I I really loved fine delicate surgery, and so mm-hmm. I um, and so I started doing electives, and I did ophthalmology kind of early on, and I really did love not just the ophthalmology, but the oculoplastics too, because there's a huge wide variety of surgery and it was just very fine and delicate. But, you know, we use tiny sutures. Mm-hmm. And... I remember those tiny, I, I, I was an ER doctor for a while. So I did sew up a few eyelids in my time with thread I couldn't see. <laughs> <laughs> so, so then I, you know, I decided to go ahead and pursue ophthalmology, which actually was a little nerve wracking because it's a, it's a hard residency to, to match into. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I, I actually matched into my my first choice, which was great. And I went to Northwestern, absolutely loved it there. Um, did Aquaplastics Fellowship in at MCW. Actually, Aquaplastics is probably even harder to get into than right. ophthalmology. Um, there are not very many fellowship spots. I actually got a fellowship position that was outside of what's called the ASOPERS uh, match. Um, so it's not, it wasn't an official ASOPERS fellowship when I started it. It became a official mm-hmm. ASOPERS fellowship while I was in it, but I don't get grandfathered in, unfortunately. So oh. it's, it's fine. I got equivalent training. So basically right. what it so was you, that. So that doesn't make you eligible for the board. Is that the issue? Or is um, it- no. So, well, I'm board certified in ophthalmology. Now right. ASOPERS has its own membership and um, there are two pathways into it. So if you went to ASOPERS fellowship, you can apply for membership straight upon completion of fellowship. If you mm-hmm. didn't go to an ASOPERS accredited fellowship, now you have to wait five years and then apply. Oh. Um, I did start the application process, but then they put it on hold during COVID, which is when I got to my five years. So I'm, I'll apply yeah. once, once it's, <laughs> when it's ready, again. when it's good for me, I'll come back yeah. to you. Yeah. Okay. So, but basically my program was so busy. We had five full-time aquaplastics people and one fellow and the one fellow couldn't handle covering five attendings. So mm-hmm. they started just taking a second fellow. So it was equivalent training and it was great training. Good. Yeah. So you were loving that and yeah. presumably you went out into practice. Did you join a group or did you set up by yourself? I, I joined a, um, so I decided that I was going to still do general ophthalmology and aquaplastics because I actually really loved cataract surgery. And I didn't 
realize how much I love cataract surgery until my last year of ophthalmology residency when I was already like, mm-hmm. uh, in a, you know, already like the <laughs> fellowship. So I had done an ocular, I've done a plastics rotation as a med student. And then during my intern year, so ophthalmology, um, back then was a one year intern year, either you can do an intern year in, in medicine or a transitional year or intern year in surgery, and then do three years of ophthalmology residency. That's now transitioning to just doing a four year ophthalmology residency. Oh. So during my intern year, I actually did an ophthalmology rotation with someone who did comprehensive and ocular plastics. And that's, so I really kind of decided I want to do ocular plastics very early on. So I went into residency with the idea that I wanted to do ocular plastics. Mm-hmm. And then during my last year of residency, also really loved doing cataract surgery. And there are some op- um, ophthalmologists that do like comprehensive plus acroplastic. So that's what I decided to try out first. Mm-hmm. And so I ended up at, at a practice where it was um, one ophthalmologist owned their practice. There was one employed optometrist. And then uh, I was brought on and he had kind of been working on like a third person. Like he had a few third persons, some optometrists, some ophthalmologists and you know, they didn't work out for various reasons. And um, I guess in retrospect, was, I, was I, that I, a red flag somewhere? <laughs> I didn't think it was because it wasn't like that many people. I talked to the most recent person who left, he was actually let go. And um, when I found out the circumstances of why I was let go later on, it was yeah, and, and he, but basically, I didn't know at the time I was interviewing, but he basically said it was justified to let him go. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah. so Susan, who um, was straight out of residency, her um, husband was still in training. So she was in the area while they were in training, and then they left after he finished training. So that seemed very reasonable. Mm-hmm. And, and then I couldn't talk to anyone. Like, I think maybe that. So you stayed in your, your home, what had become your hometown? having been there for so many years when you went into practice? No. Oh, so no, I, I, so I did my MD PhD in uh, uh, Cleveland, went to Chicago for Northwestern, went to Milwaukee for fellowship and then went to Virginia. Oh, I was thinking somewhere in there, you got married. Oh, I got married actually <laughs> um, upon graduating undergrad. Oh, okay. So, so your spouse was fine with just like, here. We're moving here now, dear. He's not medicine, right? No, he's not medicine. He's a high school teacher. So he moved with me to Cleveland. We actually did distance for um, residency and fellowship. That's a yeah. long stretch of time. Yeah. I, I mean, we have been married at that point for, what, 10 years actually already. Huh. Um, so it was, yeah, it's doable. Know, I mean, there are there doable. are many being, many careers yeah. that require that in some ways. I mean, submariner tends to be away from home quite a bit too. Did if um, presumably if he was high school, he had chunks of time that he was able to go and be with. That's you. what I'm saying. I think it worked better because he had all summer off. He had spring break, winter break. He has you know a lot of three day mm-hmm. weekends like you know MLK Day and President's Day and you know all kind of other three day yeah. weekend holidays that other people don't get. So. I think that really helped to work out in all honesty it made it so that I could really concentrate and focus on my training. But when I knew we were together, then, you know, I, not that I shirked residency at that point, but you know, no, I, you could, you know, did a little less studying right. and, and yeah. yeah. And just plan for that time for us to spend that time. So then when we we're together, it was really quality time. In some ways, I almost think it strengthened our marriage. Oh, yeah. I, I did not have that luxury. We were, I, I, 
I was trained at the time when 102 hours a week was kind of standard for interns. We didn't have uh, hour caps back then. I don't think I was conscious for a lot of the early part of my marriage. It was a, I was at work and then I was just in a state of collapse. <laughs> but, yeah, so I still train when I did the 30-hour call. I was the last mm -hmm. year to do 30-hour call. But ophthalmology, um, I would say our average weeks were about 60, 65 hours. We, we didn't hit close to 80 and we were not allowed to moonlight either. So No, if somebody's operating on my eyeball, I would like them to be well rested. Thank you very much. Of course, that's true of most parts of my body. I would rather the doctor had had enough sleep. But so at what point uh, did you start looking again into finances? Did you continue to invest through your residency and, and fellowship? Or Yeah, so because... Um... When So I did my intern year still in Cleveland, and we were used to just living off my husband's salary. He was a high school teacher, or he still mm -hmm. is a high school teacher, but he was a high school teacher back then. And um, and so we just continued to live off his salary when I was an intern. And so I actually was able to put almost my, uh, I maxed out oh, my yeah. uh uh, my raw 403b at the hospital I did my intern year at both in 2010 and 2011 so that really gave a lot to invest I actually started a Roth IRA um, for my husband and myself since I uh, graduated college my parents just told me like well now you're an adult working you need to mm -hmm. um, put money towards your uh, retirement so you need to open a Roth IRA and put money in it mm -hmm. and and at the time they didn't actually explain I need to invest that money but when I was uh, a medical student and started bringing about personal finance so part of that impetus is, is that we bought a house since it's an eight-year program a lot of the MSTPP MSTP students at Case Western Reserve do actually end up buying uh, their own home. And mm -hmm. so that got me started reading about personal finance, then reading about investing. So then I started investing with my Roth IRA. I also actually invested a little bit of side money in individual stock picks. Um, like I bought Starbucks, which has done really well over the, the over years. Over the years, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, started reading things like The Motley Fool to learn how to like analyze companies. And then of course, did the real estate. I did take a hiatus on the real estate because you know Chicago is a completely different real estate market and a lot more expensive mm -hmm. and then the moving around it and make it easy um, to kind of learn markets and and try to do all that so actually when my job in Virginia didn't uh, when the writing on the walls said maybe I should be thinking about leaving I made it I actually interviewed kind of all over the place again but I made a conscious decision to go back to Cleveland for a few reasons one I had a lot of friends that I made here from the time that I did my MD PhD program that were not involved in medicine so they're all still in Cleveland and then my husband also had friends here from you know the long time that he was in right. Cleveland and you know the it's a little hard as adults to reestablish all that social connection. After mm -hmm. nearly three years in Virginia, I felt like I was just making friends. And so I knew by going back to Cleveland, I would have that social base already. And I would also know something about the real estate market and it would be easy to mm -hmm. get back into that real estate investing. And was your husband able to slot back into the same high school or did he? He get... was. That was very That's lucky. Nice. <laughs> it, it was very lucky. Um, he, he didn't get his tenure back. He had to, act, he now has tenure again because we've been back here long enough, but mm -hmm. uh, he, uh, he, he had to work back towards his tenure. It was abbreviated to get back to tenure. Mm -hmm. um, and 
he did get a job back at the same school. I won't say it's the exact same job. So he was previously a biology teacher and he had gotten to the point where he was teaching the honors in AP biology. When he Mm -hmm. came back, there was a biology teacher uh, who had left as well as a chemistry teacher who had left. And he actually was licensed in both biology and chemistry. So he filled in. So two teachers left and they only hired him. One teacher. Sounds familiar. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, and, and now someone else had been teaching the AP bio. So he kind of got different courses that um, mm-hmm. classes that he's teaching, but yeah, same school. Yeah, that's good. And do you have children? No children. I think oh. it would have been hard to move this much with children, especially <laughs> um, being separate. I, yeah. I, I don't know how well it would be to be separate for five years of medical training. If we it had would children. be. Yeah, I don't. I don't necessarily yeah. think that would have been. Yeah, a lot of a lot of my uh, my cohort just well the. the I was always jealous of the Indian students because they would just bring their parents over and move in. <laughs> Here, mom, my mom, I think, would have done that, actually. Yeah. I, and I mean, she said many times, she's like, you know, I'll help. I'll help in every way I can because she really wanted grandchildren. And I am the oldest and I was married. But, you know, my sister got married and she's got three kids now. My brother has three kids. So she's, she's off your back a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I've got six nephews, but no nieces. So that's the one thing. No, no, uh, no girl. Uh, Oh, yeah. well, I, say, I, I feel that I, I was the eldest of four girls and I have three boys just when they were little they would do things like climb on trees get on roofs I don't understand them <laughs> anyway so. get on roofs but I definitely climbed trees when I was little I yeah what well, wasn't it was the climbing tree with no way, no way down again <laughs> like constantly calling me and of course, coming from you know Pete's and ER background, I just see disaster when I see those things. So you immediately true. go to the worst thing that can happen. But okay, so what did you do when COVID hit? What what uh, did it change, and it just continued to grow this interest? When did you start life coaching? So it was actually a result of COVID. And in all honesty, the COVID pandemic was a blessing to me in in many ways. So before the COVID pandemic, I was working at a big hospital system, a level one trauma center, taking 24-7 call as the only oculoplastic specialist. Mm. Having my two-week vacation request to Europe denied because who's going to take call? And I had thought, you know, I had discussed this with the person who hired me before I took the job that, you know, well, if I take 24-7 call when I'm around, who's going to take, you know, cover when Mm -hmm. I'm on vacation? And their answer was, well, they didn't have someone to take aquaplastics call before. They had an aquaplastics person who's very part-time, so he would just deal with whatever he could when he was around. And when he wasn't around, they would be scrambling. And and so they, they said, well, this would be much better than what we had before. So I took them at their word, but then it was like, no, you have to find someone who's going to cover it. So it's your uh, responsibility. Yeah. yeah. And, and wouldn't let me do the vacation. And, and the thing is, is like they wanted me to talk to someone else. So there's no shortage of aquaplastic specialists in Cleveland because we've got the Cleveland Clinic. We have university hospitals. Mm-hmm. You know, um, we've got private aquaplastics people. But yeah, she, she said I had to actually reach out to either Cleveland Clinic or UH. So I did reach out to the, the person at UH and he was fine with it. But the thing is, like, he doesn't actually control if UH accepts the patient, mm-hmm. uh, UH being University Hospital. So 
anyway, I, I did actually get that vacation approved, but it ended up not happening because of COVID. But because of COVID, I ended up, um, we, we had a time where all our clinics were closed and I was just going to clinic once, uh, maybe twice a week to see urgent patients. And mm -hmm. I only did one surgery during that time, which was a, a Mohs reconstruction for someone who had melanoma. Um, so mm -hmm. since it was, you know, cancer, they let us uh, go ahead and do that during uh, the pandemic. Um, but that gave me time to be at home and reflect and life was actually a little better. And then Peter Kim had the Leverage and Growth Summit. So I, you know, in my financial background, had found the White Coat Investor a long time ago, started following him, you know, followed Peter Kim when he came out, when he was anonymous as passive income MD, followed the physician philosopher, uh, 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 Jimmy Turner. So I was following all these financial people. And it's funny, I I somehow didn't get the thought of, oh, like, oh, maybe I should actually be putting something out there instead of all these, well, Peter Kim's uh, Korean, but, you know, mm -hmm. uh, Jim Dolly and Jimmy Turner are white men. And so are a lot of the financial bloggers in the physician uh, space, but right. it actually never occurred to me to do that. Are there, so are, much later on. Is there a gender skew as well that more men than women? Yeah, there's definitely gender yeah. skew with more men than women. There are more women coming on the scene. Uh, Bonnie Koo is probably the first of the women physicians who really started talking about money. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But now there, um, Latif uh, Fed and myself are also now in that space. Okay. So that sounds like a good segue for you to start talking about what you do when you're yeah. not being a, a surgeon. <laughs> What is your so, other job? Yeah, so again, uh, so being at the hospital and being on 24-7 call and really not having a lot of uh, autonomy or say, and certainly during COVID, like, you know, there were a lot of things we weren't being told or even when we went back to clinic, it was like, okay, this is what you're doing. And we didn't get to, I didn't feel like we could even give feedback. I was doing surgery on patients. And when I do surgery on patients for their eyelids, like their whole face is exposed. And so I'm like, you know, a mm -hmm. foot and a right half there. from them. And they're not being tested for COVID, whereas at the other two big hospital systems, they were testing all patients before elective surgery for COVID, but they weren't, weren't testing for me. And I'm like, I'm really just exposed. And I didn't even have someone I could appeal to when I was like asking. They're like, well, committee decided and that was it. Mm -hmm. So I got coached myself on the burnout and, and that really helped a lot. Um, and, and because of COVID, I wasn't traveling and I love to travel. So that's where a lot of my discretional spending goes to. Um, so I had, you know, a significant amount of savings that uh, from not spending from uh, travel. And I had thought before COVID to actually leave the hospital and start my own practice. But with COVID and seeing, you know, the effect of COVID shutdowns on private practices, I was like, oh, I'm not sure I want to do that or at least not anytime soon. You know, the life coaching industry is not regulated, like the medical industry is highly regulated. Mm -hmm. So I actually uh, did coach certification, you know, with the thought of like, well, maybe I could entertain this as a, a side gig or something like that. But, you know, I also told myself that, you know, even if I don't, just the skills I learn will make it, uh, will, will make me more resilient just to right. yeah. you can coach myself. yourself yes exactly right yeah. um but you know of course during training we do a lot of peer coaching and i really found that i really enjoy the peer coaching and in fact it had some of the aspects of medicine that i was kind of missing that really mm -hmm. deep one-on-one -on -one connection I, you know I, I know that there are some doctors who still get that with their patients but i don't think in ophthalmology and acroplastics i really necessarily there are a few mm -hmm. select patients where i've uh, developed that but um well, presumably not, you, don't, not, yeah. you, you don't have a longitudinal relationship with them, do you? Right. Is it, they come um, for a problem and you see them for a few months, but 
for iconoclastics, that's generally the case. Like they come for an issue, I fix it surgically, and then they go back to whoever referred them. There's uh, some issues like thyroid eye disease where I do see them more longitudinally. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in comprehensive ophthalmology, so I would say the patients I got closest with were patients where um, I have a few glaucoma patients that I was kind of seeing them much more often. Um, so some glaucoma patients, often you'll actually see them every three to four months when they're stable, but when they're not stable, you may be seeing them like really often. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and then, you know, there's some other kind of eye conditions where you're seeing them super regularly for a period of time. And so there are a few of those patients that I kind of got mm-hmm. close to, but it was a very small percentage of my patients where I really felt close to a lot of ophthalmology patients you just see once a year. Yeah. Yeah. People like me, you're just like, I think I need new lenses now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So after you went through the life coaching with all your experience in the finances and and how to invest in real estate, was that what pulled you towards that? Or do you do burnout stuff as well? Or do you think, or you think adjusting how we feel about money is going to help with burnout? (laughs) Yeah, I actually think the two kind of go a little hand in hand, because if you have, you know, a, a good grasp in your finances and you get to the point where you're even financially free, then you don't necessarily have to work for a paycheck. Now you can really negotiate to do just what you want to do and really build your ideal life. And even before you get to the point where you're financially independent or financially free, once you learn how to kind of manage your money and manage your mindset around money, then you don't feel as it's like yeah. tied, like I have to work at this job. I right. need this money. Right. right? You can and see a light at the end of the tunnel. <laughs> Right. You can see how you can build so that you can become financially independent. You can see how you could potentially lower your expenses so that you can you know, start to cut back at work. And then that might actually make you feel a lot better. And sometimes even cutting back at work, you don't necessarily cut back on your productivity. So if you're paid purely on productivity, it's even possible to maintain a similar income, but working less time when you really manage your mindset. Mm-hmm. So that is what you do with your coaching your coaching is geared on adjusting people's mindset, helping yeah, them adjust. So I, I think uh, <laughs> the kind of coaching I do is really working on mindset because it really all comes to your mindset. So you can create whatever you think you can create. And basically, our, you know, um, in life coach school, we always talk about the model. So our thoughts create our feelings. We act on our feelings and the actions we take produce the results that we have. Right. So it all comes to how you're thinking. And so when you're thinking about how you can do things and always coming with a curiosity and a feeling that, uh, you know, the thought that everything is possible and actually feeling that it's possible, then what you can do makes things possible. Mm-hmm. So for a physician, well, do, you, do you work with anybody but physicians or you, you constantly on physicians? Um, some, a few nurses, uh, like uh, nurse practitioners and midwives, I would say like higher level mm-hmm. uh, nurses. Um, but, and during my uh, training time, I coached non-physicians because uh, we did a lot of peer coaching and mm-hmm. obviously a lot of coaches aren't physicians, but at this point I mainly coach physicians. Mm-hmm. So I, what I, would I just be... think that like my being a physician, like there's just that it's extra a, a natural, Yeah. Yeah. So if you, if somebody is feeling like they could use some help in this area, what would you advise them to do first? So first is really take stock of where you are and what you are thinking, how your life is now and what an ideal life looks like. And are there ways to start bridging that gap? You know, if you want to start kind of low cost, like just 
um, the Life Coach School podcast, that's essentially where I started. And that Mm -hmm. is what really kind of started turning around my mindset and got me into the idea of coaching. Because, you know, coaching is it is an investment and it's a very worthwhile investment. And now having invested in coaches, I don't think I'll ever be without True. a coach personally. But, but we don't want all the doctors to suddenly become coaches. And you know, some people have got to start stay in medicine. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And, and, and I think coaching can help a lot of um, doctors stay in medicine and be happy in medicine. There are some physicians like myself who become coaches, but still practice. Um, and, and there are some physicians who, you know, have left, um, being a physician to uh, just coach and you know for some people that is the right choice for them we don't want the physicians to think oh I'm just going to become a coach and in all honesty like and becoming a coach is becoming an entrepreneur and that's not necessarily easy as well a whole like, new set of things you need to learn yes right. but key amongst them is understanding money and yes. investment and return on investment <laughs> So yeah, so and well, that, that part is really important for entrepreneurs to get their mindset around as well. So so you help people who feel that they're burning out or they need assistance with getting some balance with all of the things of life. What would be yeah. the first thing? You no, know, honestly, I get asked all sorts of questions. So um I, I'm gonna take you in tangents. Now I'm gonna talk about kind of the people I've worked with. So Please. I so I've coached some uh, people just purely on burnout and actually people who are doing financially well and are on the path to financial independence. And so they found me because they do read about financial um, they read about personal finances and I'm in personal finance spaces. So then mm-hmm. they learn that I'm a life coach and they'll come to me for burnout. Um, I also coach people who, so this is different patterns I see on physicians. So there's the physician who, um, you know, actually saves well, doesn't spend all their money and, but they're not investing it. And so they're not actually creating financial security for themselves because you can't save your way to financial independence, mm-hmm. but they just know nothing about money. Um, and, they just don't even know where to kind of start. And, uh, and some of them have even talked to financial advisors and kind of gotten that like sleazy factor that you'll find with some financial advisors. Told and, my, and my whole life insurance. Uh. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that's a big one. Unfortunately, less than 90% of financial advisors are truly fiduciary where they're really obligated and, and actually doing what's best for you. A lot of them are selling these whole life, universal life, you know, mm-hmm. AVLU, whatever you, you want to call it, you know, permanent life insurance products that is not right for the majority of physicians or people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then I see people who are like kind of financial train wrecks to be honest, they've, they've kind of spent um, either they they're living almost paycheck to paycheck. So they do have a little bit of savings, but they're not really investing a lot, or maybe they're maxing out their retirement accounts. But honestly, as physicians, that's typically not enough because, you know, there's a max of Mm-hmm. In 2021, it's 19,522. It's up to uh, 20,500. But even just, I mean, that sounds like a, m- a lot of money put away to retirement. But for a physician, um, no, you need, you, you want, your aim is to at least maintain the lifestyle you're used to. Right. So if you're making $30,000, $40,000 a year and you're only investing, you know, $20,000 a year towards retirement, you're not going to maintain your mm-hmm. standard of living when you get to uh, get to that, that yeah, point. Where you want a to rude awakening. Yeah. I get quite upset when I read other posts in other groups other than LNG, um, but other famous physician groups where people say, do I really need disability insurance? And I go, we're doctors. We know that disaster can strike. And unless you're sitting on a big pile, you better have some insurance. I can't believe that question is asked, but it is almost monthly asked. And and it terrifies me. I got sick 
at, at what I thought was right about the time my kids were going to go to college. And if we hadn't had the independent uh, own occupation insurance that we had separate from my employer, uh, we probably would have lost the house. It took so long to uh, get the insurance flowing from the other people. It was absolutely terrifies me when people ask those kind of questions. Right. Anyway. And sometimes it's the disability insurance you get from work, it's, it's, if you can work at all, it doesn't kick in, right? So yeah, if you can exactly. flip hamburgers at McDonald's, it won't. Exactly. That was, that was actually the point that was raised when my first official boss, when I was an attending, said, you practically frog march me in. It was like, you're on, you're on, this is part of the onboarding process. Come and meet my insurance person. And I got no occupation. And I was completely clueless. I just did what I was told. And thank God I did because we really would have been up the creek if we hadn't had it. And I, anyway, sorry. When this is yeah, no, no, I, yeah, it is one of the, <laughs> the most important things to have. And if you've ever heard Stephanie Pearson's story, I mean, she had disability oh, that's insurance. that's right, yeah. Right, she had a disability insurance. She had a, a her own policy. She had a work policy. And yet when it came time that she got disabled on the job, she had to actually even sue to get some yeah. of that money. And, yeah. and she, she was not covered like she thought she was. Yeah, covered. I had to get an attorney for, my, for the hospital. They wouldn't release the policy. And I got this letter that I almost threw away. And it had a funny, it almost looked like a bill, bill due kind of thing. And I opened it and said, are you planning on filing for long-term disability? And I filed it and I had it a month later. But the, hosp the hospital didn't, it. it just nuts. And then I had to pay 20% of my income from that policy to the attorney. I do, I, no, but I really I mean, get emotional when I see those posts saying, do I need insurance? Like, ah! And you medicine know. costs money. Yeah, medicine costs money. But not isn't this in the curriculum. Probably should be in high school curriculum, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so, and that's why I'm on a mission now to really get more physicians to get, you know, financial literacy so that they have their disability own occupation, you know, policy that really will help them in case they need it, that they have the proper life insurance term if they need it. And, you know, maybe not even need it at all, depending on their situation. So like my husband and I, we don't have any children, we don't have any independence, we do have life insurance, but we don't, we wouldn't necessarily have to. I have life insurance for myself because I do real estate investing. My husband wants no part of it. So mm -hmm. I want him to be able to um, essentially fire sale off our real estate and not worry about it and not worry about any kind of debt that I've taken on for our investment and just pay that off with the life insurance right. policy I have on me. Um, and then I have a life insurance policy on him because I actually depend on him for my, um, uh, for my health insurance. Mm -hmm. And because, uh, as a physician, I... I like just being part-time at this point. So I can also do the life coaching and that means having to have my own healthcare. And we all know about how expensive yeah. healthcare is. Which is unfortunately the other part of it though. I think like, because you're a doctor doesn't mean you don't get sick. There's, right. there's a lot of bad stories. You need to read more. <laughs> and I actually have a medical condition that I'm really lucky that I was able to get a full own occupation um, mm. uh, medical policy. And the, so, and the reason I was able to get it is because at Northwestern, for any person in training, the last year of their training, they can get a, a, a own occupation policy from standard that that's a pretty good policy without medical review. Yeah. And, and so that's so important to know so that we, we need know, to get if a residence pro residency right. program has that, like every resident who has any medical condition should be picking up their disability insurance right. at that time. And, and, and even if they don't have a disability, you might get one two years later. So get right it now, well, it's cheaper. Yes, definitely. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, if you're totally healthy, you may be better off like uh, just doing the medical exam and and uh, well, as opposed to the standard policy. But right, but for every year you wait, a the risk that you're not as healthy the next year. But for every even just being older, it it costs more. So get on board when it's reasonable, especially in the last year residency. Yeah, actually, I remember meeting um, a medical when I was a medical student. There was a ED. Um, uh, resident who was like always telling everyone to get disability insurance because he actually uh, got a heart condition during residency, did not have disability insurance, and now can't get it. I get it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you don't want to get disability insurance when you're a medical student. You want to get it after, I think you can get it after you've matched to residency, but basically you need to know what specialty yeah. you're going to be in before you apply. So there is a downside to actually applying too early. So there's so many nuances to learning about disability insurance. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're a woman, uh, you definitely want to get it before you get pregnant. But then of course, if you're deciding to have children during medical school, then it's like, do you get it before, you know, you have your specialty and pay much higher premiums, but risk having something happen to your pregnancy that like you can't get it afterwards. It's mm -hmm. yeah, uh, there's a lot, of, there's a lot to think about, which is why there are people who spend their entire lives teaching about this stuff. So what um, I'll, I'll in the links in the links below this invisible place, I will put uh, links to Pearson too, because I think that's a that's a really important. Yeah, now I like resource. to send everyone to where I'm like, go get a second opinion. Make sure that, I mean, even if you have it, like just make sure it's a rock right. solid. Have that somebody look at it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So after you've you've talked to somebody back off the cliff when they realize how much money they've been losing, um, where would you suggest? Do you, do you suggest everybody real estate or are there other options that you would come up with? You like real estate because you enjoyed the gardening and things, presumably. <laughs> I love houses, but I hate the headache of owning houses. <laughs> so there is a way to, to invest in real estate uh, completely passively through syndications. So what I, I do is actually, I talk about all the different options and and then really work with um, the client on what appeals to them, what they wanna do, um, what their goals are. So if you want to achieve financial independence quickly, direct ownership in real estate probably is the fastest way to do it, but it is a lot of work and it is a lot of learning. And, you know, you are going to make mistakes along the way. You will likely lose money on the way. Hopefully it's small chunks of money as opposed to larger chunks of money. Um, but it, it, there's, you know, we talk about passive income and a lot of people who get into direct real yeah. estate investing are like, this is not passive. That's not, it's the not idea that passive. passive. Yeah. The idea yeah. of passive income is that the amount of income you're getting is disproportional to the amount of work you're putting in. Now, yeah, with direct ownership real estate, in the beginning, it's a lot of work, but eventually it can become much more passive. Right. You, you put in a lot of work in the beginning. There are some people, if they're, uh, if they're still enjoying practicing medicine and they're coming to me like relatively young, especially like residents or fellows or you know, attendings within their first five years, you can actually still just get to financial independence by doing the old fashioned invest in, you know, the stock market and just invest really regularly, but you just have to invest enough and keep investing and not sell when it goes down. Yeah. Not panic. Yeah. Not panic. Yeah. But of course the housing market does that too. So you, right. you have lots of panics with that. Do you do yourself invest in rental stuff or do you just buy and flip? Um, I, you know, I do have, uh, well, I, I actually recently just sold my long-term rentals. Um, I had uh, a duplex and a triplex 
And I sold them partially because of a, a new ordinance that was passed in Cleveland that I just didn't want to deal with. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do still have a short-term rental that I, that I self-manage and actively manage. And of course, a short-term rental is probably even more work than a long-term rental when it mm-hmm. comes to actual property management. Uh, and then I, I have investments in different real estate syndications. Right. So really, the best advice is find somebody that already knows the stuff and go and talk to them. And you are one of the, you are one of the them. Yeah. <laughs> so, so all of your information you kindly sent me before will be in this. Is there anything you'd like to say in addition? Um, yeah, so really so important that all physicians get at least a basic level of financial literacy. And there's so many great resources out there. So I started my own podcast, the Grow Your Wealthy Mindset podcast. Um, so I'm hoping that will be a great resource for people for years to come. I also have a YouTube channel where I've got kind of shorter little clips uh, of videos. It's I'm trying to make my podcast a little bit more organized than the YouTube uh, videos are kind of like, well, what, what do I think people need to know? And I just kind of record a little clip. Um, and I've been doing that for over a year. Um, but there's also a lot of other resources. There's the White Coat Investor who's been a- around a long time. I mentioned him earlier. And he's got several books that are great. There's the White Coat Investor Conference that is now held every year. Um, it's going to be next year. Uh, I- believe the beginning of March. Um, it'll be in Phoenix, Arizona at the JW Marriott there. Really nice place. That's where I'm, it was held last year. It was, I'm, really, was I'm really at the end of, you know, I'm post-retirement age. So, so that a lot of it won't be pertinent to me, but I have a son that's just moved to Flagstaff. So maybe there's a good reason I should go there. <laughs> it's a wellness conference too. So there, oh, there's there, excellent reason to go there. Lot, yeah. A lot of life coaches um, give talks there too. So hopefully I will be a speaker there uh, as well. They haven't chosen the speakers yet, but I am applying. And, um, you know, uh, I, I mentioned Passive Income MD, Peter Kim, um, who was a founder of LGA. So uh, I don't remember if I actually said this, but yeah, the Leverage and Growth Summit, I mean, that was really yeah, kind of the great. beginning of my transformation for sure, because that's when uh, I first found out about coaching through Sonny Smith. He had Sonny Smith talk on and that, and then I started listening to Life Coach School podcast from that. And when I talked to the physicians at the hospital, I was employed that none of them were interested in anything extra. Uh, Whereas you go to LGA and yeah, there's people starting all sorts of different things. And do you think, do you think the people who aren't interested is because they're burned out and they can't like leave me in my silo? I don't want to think, or are they just, not all of them are necessarily burnt out. Some of them just, I think are in that mindset of like, I just want to practice medicine. I don't want to know the business part of it. I want to just do my job and go home. And, you know, if I'm, I, you know, I get paid well enough just to do this. Mm-hmm. And part of it may be that, like, I don't want to have to sit and think about the business stuff because I want to spend the time with my family, you know, um, and they're okay with not having the autonomy or, I mean, and I would say there are probably different hospital systems that are, you know, better to work for than others that might, you know, I, for, for me, it's, um, I crave too much autonomy. I really want things to be efficient um, and, you know, I could see in the hospital system I was at just like how much inefficiency there was in terms of like billing, in terms of streamlining things, in terms mm-hmm. of like having the doctor do all these tasks that you could really have someone at a much lower pay rate uh, rate do. Mm-hmm. It's really not collecting money that's owed. I mean, it's it, it's uh yeah. So we will have links down below for people to go and look at all those resources. And I thank you so much for joining me today. 
And yeah, thanks so much. Maybe for maybe me. we'll think of things we can talk about again and come back. <laughs> I would love to. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us at Myth Magic Medicine. If you have found this episode useful, you can apply for free CME credit through the link provided in the transcript. If you're not a medical professional, please remember, while we're physicians, we're not your physicians. So please consult with your own healthcare professional if you think something you have heard might apply to you or a loved one. Until next time, bye-bye.